Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back, everyone, to yet again another episode of Brace for Impact. I'm your host, Nick Jeevas, and what a week it has been. I thought of no one better to help us wrap up this insane week, not just in news, but all around the country, than Holly McKay. And Holly and I worked together for about a year, give or take, at Fox News back in the day. But one day, around the same time, both of us woke up and realized there was more to life than serving a corporate master. Even before this realization, she was one of the most dedicated, invested, bravest people and reporters that I'd ever had the pleasure of meeting. She was funny and personable and always tried to make you feel welcome, had a smile on, was always working on these very intense, deep stories, and she had a passion for them. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to talk about her time abroad in the Middle East and Ukraine. We're going to get into her coverage of the Mexican cartels across the border. We're going to get into the fentanyl and opioid crisis that has sprung out as a result of poor border security and poor education especially with children and how they're being attracted to some of this fentanyl. It's purposely rainbow colored or or made to look like candy. And this kind of issue is ravishing American families. And mainly it's depleting the most valuable resource the country has, good people. When someone is strung out or pushed into the fires of addiction, that's one less contributor, one less problem solver, one less taxpayer, one less parent in the mix And the ripple effect is huge. So we're going to dive into her work on that to see if there's any solutions or maybe some different points of view that our leaders can take to try to solve that crisis. And we're also going to discuss why being independent as she now is and as I've been in the past and so many others are now, how it's a worthy pursuit and how so many new voices might actually add something substantial to the national conversation and where we go next. You can feel it with Holly, like most of our other guests. There's a genuine sound behind her voice and her point of view. She's someone that I deeply admire, and it's an honor to, after all this time and all that's happened with both of us, to get to have her on here to see how we can use our knowledge to make a better tomorrow and a better world for our children. It's a dream come true. It's an amazing gift that she's not only given to the audience, but to me personally. So let's not waste another minute. Let's dive in with my good friend and class act. Holly McKay. Let's get down to business. I have my former colleague from Fox News here with us, Holly McKay. Holly, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell me, you covered a lot of major issues. I remember when I worked with you, you you did uh, the Middle East, you did politics, you did women's rights. I'm pretty sure you did some healthcare stories. You were like a, a few of us all over the place, but you did massive deep dives on a lot of topics. What are you writing about these days that our listeners should know about? Well, I'm still, obviously, after I left Fox, I I moved back to Afghanistan and 
and lived there for a long time and then spent time in Ukraine. So I'm still very invested in places overseas that we may not hear about all that much, like Afghanistan and Syria and, and those sorts of places. So I'm still very passionately kind of staying in contact with people there. Um, but I also am looking at a lot of things that maybe have a little bit more of a, an impact right here in the, the United States and something I've been doing a lot of in investigative sort of work in. Um, and really this does go back to Fox time too, but maybe even more so now. And that is sort of the cartel linkages and particularly with drugs like fentanyl and, and ISO and other things that are affecting just huge portions of the US that I think, I mean, when you consider the sort of, you're talking about more than a hundred thousand people dying of these things every year. And it's something that really gets very little attention in the scheme of things. Yeah, it's a nasty drug. I remember you, I've shared this story with you. I had a lot of back surgeries and back then they were not as cautious with fentanyl. So I know what it feels like to have it in your system and go through withdrawal of it. And it's a disgusting, horrible drug. In your study of the cartels and these deadly drugs, have you found anyone that's come up with any sort of solution to help stem the tide on this issue? Or is it still just going to keep snowballing? Yeah, it's really hard. It's obviously a very political issue because it is coming, you know, while the precursors come from China and then they go to Mexico and then essentially are funneled up uh, to every state and I would say sort of every town and city in the United States. And a lot of the times people aren't even aware uh, that there is fentanyl in the product. Perhaps they're going to a black market pharmacy or they're ordering another sort of street drug, but pretty much everything is lined with fentanyl these days. And just the tiniest amount can, can kill you. So it's absolutely terrible. Terrifying, and there's no real way of knowing sort of how much or what is in there. Um, so that's sort of why we're seeing so many deaths. And I just also want to preface by saying we often look at the opioid crisis and say um, it's an overdose, but I think it's a little bit of a, a, an incorrect terminology. It's actually a poisoning. So it's not necessarily that there, people are taking too much of it. It's that the tiniest amount can just sort of kill you. So I think um, opioid poisoning is, is probably a better description to explain what is happening. But in terms of solutions, it's a very politicized. You've got uh, fractions on the right that really want to designate cartels as terrorist groups, uh, which comes with pros and cons. Uh, pros, you know, being that you can perhaps cut down on the sort of the financial aspect. You can go after people in the United States that are working with them a little bit more, but then it also uh, reduces your ability to have any sort of dialogue and would probably increase tensions between Mexico City and Washington. So there are diplomatic fallouts to that solution that people just sort of see as untenable. There are questions as to whether the cartels fit the definition of terrorism, and you can make arguments either way for that. Um, I do think at the end of the day, it's a business model. They're business people. They're looking at the bottom line, um, and that you know happens to be through the particular drug trade. Uh, and then on the left, you sort of have a, another kind of extreme view of it where uh, lawmakers sort of want uh, more open policies or more um, easier ways to kind of get visas and, and access to the U.S., which they think would cut down on the crime. Um, so it, it's, it's very hard to find a solution. We can look at the great work that many DEA agents have been doing over the past three decades, but it's very hard to look at the war on drugs, quote unquote, and say that it's working because it's not. Um, what the answer is going forward is very hard to know, but I think the status quo is not going to get us anywhere. No, I don't think so either. And where do you feel, because we've both written stories about the opioid crisis broadly and targeted stories, 
Where are the doctors lie in this with accountability? So many prescriptions were written to hook people in the first place, or not to hook them, but it ended up getting people hooked. And that's when they graduated to these desperation fentanyl buys. Are, did the doctors play any role in this by prescribing 400 pills a month of, of dilaudid and oxycodone and oxycontin? Or do you think it's more of just a criminal element that's pushing this crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think what happens... In these particular cases, and I've spent a lot of time with those that are suffering from addiction, and it, uh, there was obviously a time when we didn't have the awareness, perhaps, or doctors were getting kickbacks from Big Pharma, and I really do think Big Pharma is often at the root of a lot of these things, um, where they were writing these sort of prescriptions very freely and that was causing people to get addicted. I mean, a lot of people I know, it could be something as simple as getting a tooth out and then you're, you're prescribed, um, you know, Vicodin or some other sort of, um, painkiller. Uh, or you, maybe you were a, a teenager playing sports and you had a sporting injury and then suddenly you had a, a bunch of pills thrown at you that suddenly made you feel, um, you know, like you're kind of walking on air and, then when the crackdown happened, when you could no longer get the drugs that were sort of sustaining you for some time and doctors were afraid to uh, prescribe opioids, that prompted a lot of people then to turn to the st either street drugs, something like meth or other things that will kind of – or heroin to give you that high or you go to underground pharmacies. Um, so go to these sort of – strange pharmacies that anyone can Google and, and order things from. Um, and the problem now really is that those drugs are, whether they're street drugs or whether they're from a black market pharmacy, there's a very, very high probability that they're not just going to be, if at all, the product you're ordering, that they're going to be either pure fentanyl or aligned with fentanyl to some degree. And as I said, the smallest amount can kill you, and that is just terrifying. It, I can imagine terrifying for parents, um, teenagers who you know go to, to parties, or there's peer pressure, or there's um, a desire to you know to go against the grain or experiment. It's very different to when I was growing up as a teenager than what it is now, because that one little um, experimentation can be absolutely deadly. And you see with the fentanyl products, you've got rainbow fentanyl, you've got things that are really designed to target children. You've got lollipops. It's, it's absolutely terrifying world out there. And again, it just doesn't seem to get the attention that it really deserves. And I'm not sure if that's because so much of the mainstream media um, you know, is in these kind of cities, um, and, and so many of the deaths, while they do happen in cities, absolutely, they also happen in very rural areas, in much of the flyover parts of the United States, and, and maybe that just isn't of interest um, to news outlets. And there's also still, unfortunately, a lot of stigma around the issue as well. When we think of drug addicts, we, we have sort of these automatic perceptions in our mind, which I think really need to change uh, because it can absolutely impact anyone. And as I said, it, it could be something as, as small as, as getting a tooth out that really sends you down a dark spiral. And, and that stigma is also what stops people from getting the help that they may need that may save them their own lives. And, and second fall to that, you know, we, we have a very complicated, um, healthcare industry as well. And a lot of people are not able to sort of afford the exorbitant cost of getting something like an insurance or insurance insurance companies are very quick to deny people of things as well. So I think that there are 
sort of multifaceted problems that need to be addressed, and I just don't think enough is being done to address them. Yeah, it's like a dystopia out there, like it was a movie 10 years ago, and our heads are on the screen, and now you look out your window, and the window has become the screen. And you mentioned it could be a a mother of three uh, that is, quote-unquote, addicted to the drug. It's not someone that's uh, homeless on the streets or, you know, hasn't showered in five days. It can be someone that you know. And, by the way, there are treatments out there. I hope anyone listening that is struggling uh, does know there are drugs that can help you come off of these medications and counselors that are willing to help. Switching gears, though, I want to ask you, you've done a lot of coverage on a lot of deep issues, not just writing up clips of cable news, which we also said was funded by Big Pharma still. But uh, what's your most, I don't want to say interesting story, but what are you most proud of when you think about your work, thinking back on all the years you've written and, and been a journalist? What comes to mind? Oh, my gosh. I'm probably the worst person to ask that question to. <laughs> um, what am I most proud of? Or what moved you the most? When I say story that you've written, what are the first few that come to mind? Does anyone pop into your head more than the other? I mean, I really do love working with, not love, this is not the right word, but I I find it very um, fulfilling, I guess, when you're able to work with women, especially in, in very sort of oppressed places, uh, working with minority groups in the Middle East um, and Afghanistan and and. Being able to tell their stories, and, and these oftentimes are women that um, have been subject to rape as a weapon of war, um, have been, you know, cap- captured for very long periods of time, and have really survived the most unfathomable things. And to me, that's always been something that really interests me, is this idea of how very ordinary humans can just be forced to become so extraordinary in a moment. Um, and they don't have training and they don't have all these sort of skills. And, um, I think a lot about content that's very popular in the United States and, and, you know, including myself, we, we gravitate to someone who's commit, um, able to do amazing feats and, and run these sort of 500 miles in X amount of days or, or summit K2 or do all these kind of amazing things. Um, but what I think interests me and, and, and part of the reason I've always been so drawn, I think, to conflict places is just this idea of what ordinary people are capable of. And that really reminds me of what we're all capable of and just the ability of human beings to withstand so much. And, and you meet people that have endured, you know, torture and kind of the most unfathomable things. And yet they, they somehow are able to, to find their way through and, and find their, you know, new sense of normalcy and have a hope to go on. And I just think to me, that is just extraordinary. And their stories, you know, you would never know who these people are, but their stories are just so incredible and moving. And so that's really been, I think, the common denominator for me and what continues to kind of drive me to want to go to these places and, and to be able to tell these stories because if they'd happened here in the United States, that person would be, you know, sort of an absolute hero. But because it's happening um, in the middle of a village 5,000 miles away and we never know about it, um, that story never gets told. And so, of course, it's impossible to tell every amazing story, but I think that's one thing I've always gravitated to in my work. I love that sentiment because we preach that on the show. You can override some of those conditioned responses or that PTSD. It's hard. It's always traumatic and awful to go through something like that. But when you come out the other end, like you said, smiling somehow, even though it defies all logic, those really are the the best stories. Uh, I agree with you on that. That's an amazing um, adventure that you've had throughout your whole career. When did you first 
begin traveling abroad uh, to the Middle East and to places like that you were saying don't get as much coverage. Uh, when did that part of your career take off? I was, I guess I started doing a lot of traveling. I was always into travel, but in terms of Middle East, I think I started, I mean, I did a little bit of work in, or not work, but was traveling kind of on my own um, in Syria. That was just before the revolution. That's sort of still when it was fairly easy to go. Um, that was in 2000 and 10 and that really piqued my interest for what um what was out there and just all these things that I felt that I should have learned in school that I absolutely just never did um just the very basic understanding of other cultures and and places and I was fascinated by it and I also felt this sort of shame of well I should know these things um, and I didn't. And so that really piqued my interest. And then I sort of started, kept it up pretty much since then. And, and then really kind of started working exclusively in that part of the world around 2014. Now, I never asked you this, but did you ever uh, publish or think about writing a book about these experiences? Because this sounds quite unique uh, as far as reporters or even people in general goes, uh, what you've done and accomplished. Yeah, I have written a couple of books. I had uh, Only Cry for the Living, which is based on Iraq and Syria, particularly through the ISIS time. Um, and that came out at the beginning of 2021. So that's sort of um, a fairly extensive look at different memos and, and really every side of the story kind of thing. So there would be, um, you'd be looking at it from the U.S. soldier's point of view. I would be embedded maybe with the Iraqi army and then the Peshmerga army and then some Syrian democratic forces, and then I'd also be interviewing ISIS terrorists, um, that would also be with a lot of Yazidis or Christians that were impacted and, and had to flee their homes. So it's a, it's, a, um, it's a sort of very multifaceted sort of view of a particular situation um, that was, yeah, very much a labor of love. And then I recently had come out a, a, a photography book um, with my photographer that I lived and worked with in Afghanistan, um, and that was in 2021, and and I did the writing, he did the photos, and it's sort of more of a collector's item, but it's, um, so it sort of documents before the fall, and then we were there during the fall, and then uh, we stayed and lived there for, for several months after the fall, um, so you get sort of a very, uh, you get to sort of experience that Afghan transition period through words and, and through pictures. Hate to pull the plug on this powerful stuff, but we have to take a quick commercial break, and we will be right back with more from journalist Holly McKay. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is your host, Nick Jeevas. As promised, we have a few more truth bombs headed your way, so strap in. Please keep your hands and feet inside the cockpit at all times as we get ready to brace for impact. Going through all this, uh, to be honest, it sounds like the adventures you've had, most Americans or most people would need pills from Big Pharma to cope with it. How do you, or how did you cope with the stress of the travel and the, and the writing and the danger? Or did you just love it and were embedded in it so much that it wasn't a matter of fear or stress for you? Yeah. Um, I did love it. And I, I absolutely loved it. And to the point where, you know, it, it just, it was my life. I didn't want to do anything else. I, you know, struggled very much to have a normal life when I wasn't traveling. Um, but, as much as you can love something, it can certainly still have an impact on you. And I think it certainly did after many years of just sort of back to back going to different places or obsessing about places. Um, and I think it, I did, you know, I, I did take its toll on me 
um, as much as I, you know, was able to present an, uh, an image maybe of, of having things together. I think behind the scenes it certainly wasn't. Um, and I think that real, um, a real moment for me, I think, was coming back. I was in Ukraine, so I sort of went there in January of 2022, and there were rumblings about an invasion. Um, and then that happened, and then, you know, I stayed there um, through that, and then and then sort of the month after that. And it was a very difficult place to work, especially independently. Just um, trying to get around was difficult. I got a third degree burn to my leg um, and then I refused to leave and I couldn't really leave and I couldn't get the help I needed. And so each day I'd be just praying it didn't get infected. So it just was a lot. Um, and then obviously former um, colleague from Fox was killed who I was in very close contact with. And so it was just a lot of things that happened there and it, it was just a very difficult place for me to work alone. Um, and not have a support system and that I think was very difficult for me and so when I came back from that um, I really yeah, had to, to do a lot of uh, soul searching and, and take a break and I actually spent time and I've written about this before I I spent time in Mexico um, at a place that where you could do um, a psychedelic called Obergain and it's also where I happened to meet a lot of people that were struggling with addiction and although my circumstance was very different. Um, I wanted to do something that was a little bit radical that I'd heard friends of mine that, you know, military friends and things that had tried it. And I, it, it changed my life. I, I say without a shadow of a doubt, I would not be the person I am sort of functioning today if it wasn't for trying this particular um, plant medicine that, that comes from from Africa and it it absolutely changed my life what did it feel like oh god it was it was not it was not a pleasant experience I'll tell you that you pretty much you know and you did I did a flood what they call a flood dose so it's a lot and you're in it for you know you're going in it for 12 to 18 hours you're 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 in it it's not a quick experience um and basically you you lose you lose all your ability to function to use your hands and legs you you really just go back to this sort of infantile state and that is part of the idea is your brain is also going back to an infantile state before experiencing all the trauma and you just go through everything in your life every person i mean i'm remembering conversations from when i was 3 years old with people um and you go back through, you go back through traumatic experiences. You see yourself as a child. You see your parents as children. You see people that have, you know, I'm having conversations with my grandfather and other people that have passed that I never really said goodbye to. And so it's, it's an incredibly healing experience in that way. But you're also going through the hard things, but you're going through them in a way that, that makes you able to look at them, um, from a very different lens, from a lens of, of much more compassion for yourself and for everybody around you. And so I think that's really what makes it is healing is just, and it's amazing to, to think about how much our brain stores that we forget about um, that, you know, I would never have been able to, to sort of pull up on my own. And um, so it was just incredible. You're, you're literally here in your internal organs working. It's, the most fascinating thing and I, I remember you know having just to crawl on my hands and knees to get to the bathroom and you just yeah as you can't 
you're laughing, you're crying, you're throwing up. Um, it's just sort of everything happening all at once. And, um, yeah, it, you know, it took, you know, a good day afterwards, even just to be able to kind of walk properly and, and, and function properly. And, and I mean, even picking up your phone, it just is this big like blob in your hand that's going in and out. So, um, it's an incredible experience. It is hard to describe, but for me, I felt that it took me through so much of my journey, um, it through my life and through people, and it just gave me such a deeper understanding of how connected we are in the world. Um, to just you know, it sounds corny, but you you really remember how connected you are to the earth and the fact that this shrub from um, Africa, from North Africa, has this ability to do this. To me, is just amazing to be able to induce these memories and enable you to sort of have these experiences and the idea of it is really how it rewires your brain and that's what um it did for me I felt that I just you know a lot of the things that I was holding on to I was able to let go I think a lot of those things are God-given gifts to us. He gave us a brain and, and these plants are around us. We, we've already derived so much from it. You know, opioids, as bad as they are, they do kill pain when used properly. And, and this drug seems to have done a lot for you. And I, I have to actually, funny you bring that up. I want to mention that I've had that experience once around only one or two people where they bring out the vividness of memories I thought were gone. And all of a sudden, I feel like I'm seeing it. So when you mentioned that, I was fascinated because I love when that happens and you're able to feel the past as if it's right in front of you and it doesn't sound like it should be real but it is well that's i want to switch gears here for our last part of the the segment and the show i want to talk about the media a little bit because obviously you and i both worked in it there's a lot of changes going on right now there's a lot of uh, ability for people to be independent do you think that the structure of the media right now is starting to collapse because so many people like you and i can have a discussion without the corporations getting involved that we can get a mic we can get on uh, this audio chat here or do you think it's going to take you know many more years until this structure funded by big pharma in part uh comes down and, and it's more citizen journalists you know i i wish i could tell you that that citizen journalism was a thing but i think unless you're already coming from a massive platform where you already have a million twitter followers and you're already coming from one of those big corporate structures that gives you again the platform it's very hard to you know to make a decent living independently i do think that to me the biggest problem is still very much the media monopoly i mean uh you know there's we have the you know main cable main broadcast sort of shows and and obviously when it's television it's still very much advertiser driven um, and then on the digital side, you've got paywalls, which I think, you know, they might keep an outlet functioning, but they also drive um, this sort of echo chamber ideology because if you can, you know, we can all, we can't all afford to subscribe to everything. So if you have to be selective about that, you're probably going to pick places where you already adhere to that ideology. And so that sort of drives and reinforces that even more. Um, so I do think... I do think more so than ever, really, it is still a very much corporate controlled arena. And whilst there are opportunities that exist for independent journalism, like Substack and everything, it's, it's very difficult, again, if you're not coming from a place of already having millions of followers to be able to sustain um, a really living on it. And even in my time of, of being in the sort of independent freelance world, which is about two and a half years, um, I was very fortunate in the beginning 
because I was living in Afghanistan and it fell and suddenly there's all this interest um, in what's happening. And so I was able to, you know, set pretty good rates and boundaries that I don't think I would have been able to otherwise. And then with Ukraine, um, but really even in the two and a half years, the absolute decline of freelance rates. I mean, so many places are, we don't have a budget. We don't have a budget. But what I always think is ironic is all the new sort of startups will come to me and say, Oh, but people don't trust the news anymore. And we're going to be the bearer of truth. And I say, great. Um, you know, let's do X, Y, Z story. This is what I need. Oh, but we don't have a budget. And, and I always laugh because I, you know, I'm always expecting it, mind you. You can't be the bearer of truth without time, without giving a reporter time, money, and resources to do the deep dives that need to be done. And if you aren't willing to do that, you're really just another op-ed place, again, that's driving an agenda. Um, and I think that this is why we see so many startups fail because they're not, they don't have the capital or they, they're not willing to spend the time. And corporations, um, whilst some of them still do, you know, long-form investigative journalism, most of it really is clickbait aggregation because that's an easy, quick way to money. And I think that is incredibly disappointing. And that was probably my main driver for not wanting to be in that sort of world anymore that I found incredibly insulting, actually, at the end after having spent you know, my entire career from the age of 20 doing enterprise reporting and then suddenly being told I had to, to become sort of some factory aggregation person when I was aggregating things that I knew way more about than whatever. And to me, it was also, it was plagiarizing the work of journalists that had, had put in the hard yards um, for a quick buck. And it felt very much to me like those big you know, um, again, media monopoly were able to, you know, go to local news stations or small publications where people had done incredible work um, and sort of take them and, and really take the wind out of their stories. And to me, that was just wrong. According to, as reported by, that was always the trick to just hyperlink their work and say, oh, well, we're the big platform. So Yeah, and it's, it's wrong to me. It's still taking the thunder from someone else's story. And... I just, I don't want to be part of that machine. And so for me, I, I made that very clear decision when I left there that I was you know, going to be free and do things how I wanted, but it is difficult. And it is, you know, a process that I have to think about for myself as to, you know, what is sustainable and what can I do, um, to, if at all that, you know, that I can continue. And it's not that I don't love it because I do, but, um, I have to families to support. I have, you know, other things now that I, I have to think about in my life that, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a sad transition story, really. It is, but I think there's hope, and I think there's still some people out there that are accumulating Twitter followings of a quarter million. But you're right. Even if you have a million followers and you're not famous already like Tucker or somebody like that or uh, Joe Rogan, it is difficult. I just want to share, too, with you that I left around the same time you did at Fox for the same reason. I felt like it became a betrayal to the readers and the viewers that – they weren't acting in private the way that they would in public, saying, well, with this news organ, number one name in news, which we're going to follow these stories. And like you said, it was a lot of aggregation and it was a lot of sausage making. But hopefully this new frontier, even if it takes another decade, uh, let's hope that more voices get uh, some attention. So I'm going to ask you just a lighter question to end the segment and then we'll uh, ask where we can follow you on, on social media and where we can best find you. But do you have a favorite book or movie or piece of fiction that you go to? to cope with this or to when you just need a good laugh or a good uh, cry, even whatever it might be. What moves you in the, in the fiction realm, if anything? 
Oh my gosh. Well, I'm mostly a nonfiction person, to be honest with you. And it's usually fairly heavy stuff, but it's still, it reminds me of why I love doing it. James Hersey's Hiroshima. Um, it's a book that he wrote in the 1950s. He went to Japan and wrote about the survivors of, you know, and the impacts of the atomic bomb from the Second World War. And it's just so beautifully written. It really reminds me of why I wanted to be a writer and also what it means to capture those human stories and the detail and the emotion and, and how to convey that. Um, and that's sort of my, always been sort of my, my standard and my Bible to go back to when it comes to writing of how to translate those human stories. So to me, that really is just the epitome of that. And I think with that, it also taught me about a different perspective. Um, obviously at that point in time, you know, much of you know, Japan was the enemy and, and Americans, you know, had a very hostile view of the Japanese. Um, but I think in reading that book, it, it always reminded me of the fact that there is always another side and that there are always innocent people caught up in that other side and how important it is to remember and to convey and to share the other side and not just what we think is in our sort of ideology and our point of view and what we believe to be is right. Um, so I go back and I read that book really all the time. Um, and then in terms of another nonfiction that's very different that I always love again for the writing is William Finnegan's Barbarian Days. Um, he was a writer for a long time, is a writer for a long time for The New Yorker, and he wrote a book about his, you know, surf hippie days, um, spanning many decades. And it's, again, it's beautifully written and um, it's just sort of another reflection of the human condition. And that's what I think we all look for is that sort of connection. Well, Holly, please keep uh, doing what you're doing. I know you, even if you don't do it in the form of being a journalist, don't ever change. You're one of the most genuine people I ever met. It's so rare here, especially you're in Manhattan, D.C., in these hotbeds of media. So please uh, keep your mission going because we need you out there. Where can people find you? Where can people best follow your work and keep up with what you're working on? Yeah, um, my website is Holly McKay. Uh, my name, H-O-L-L-I-E-M-C-K-A-Y. My substack is also hollysmckay.substack.com um, and then I am on Instagram and Twitter at hollysmckay. Again, it's H-O-L-L-I-E S-M-C-K-A-Y. We're going to be following you in the future no matter what you do. You can be sure of that. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. It was a beautiful sentiment. Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Nick. All right. That takes us to one final break before we come back and wrap this all up in a bow for you. So don't go anywhere because we'll be back in just a second. What else can you say to that other than that Holly's stories were extremely powerful? And I'm always amazed at how calmly she's able to talk about living in Ukraine and being in Afghanistan when it fell, like she's just crossing the state line to go grab a gallon of milk. And that's what makes her an interesting interview and an amazing person. The first photo that I ever saw of Holly was on her author page, I believe, or maybe it was on social media, but it was her in the desert with Kevlar on and she was smiling. So when you ask yourself who out there is really trying to get you the truth and not just line their pocketbooks based on your anger or your naivete, she should definitely be considered at the top of that list. Because not only is she doing this because it's a passion for her, but she understands the meaning and the value of self-sacrifice. And not a lot of people understand that. It's important to interview people that have been through trauma, that have been through torture and torment, 
because not only will they have insight to give the rest of us, but they're an example. They're proof that on a day that feels hopeless, it can always get worse. And that if those people can bounce back, you can bounce back too. And she's very unique with that because today it's more about how do I get you to click? How do I manipulate you? How do I get money out of the click? So the fact that she went fully independent and did that is, is brave of her. And I want to salute her again for that leap that she took. Now, we covered a lot of topics, and I want to address one or two of the main ones that Holly discussed and then share a little bit of a personal story regarding the cartels and the drugs pouring in before we wrap up. But first off, I think Holly is right that when you're independent and on your own with a media career, any career, really, it's always harder than if you had a benefactor or a protective corporate shell. But if you follow that desire for comfort from cradle to grave, never taking risks, and you don't do whatever it takes to make sure you can lay your head down on the pillow at night, then one day, you'll pick your head up and realize that your entire life has passed you by. Tiger Carlson, former colleague of Holly and myself, and it's a great, timely example. Tucker started out independent with The Daily Caller. He had done some years with Crossfire. He'd been known. He'd had some connections, yes. But he did those years at The Daily Caller. Then he moved on, divested, and went to Fox. But when I visited him on the Fox set one day, I brought my brother and my mother. And I remember my brother saying to him, you know, hey, good to meet you, Tucker. I really respected when you went on your own and went independent. And you could see that Tucker's kind of cable news face because he was getting ready to go back on the air that he had put on, a glimmer of happiness and this bittersweet nostalgia came through his eyes when my brother said that. Now, granted, we can't compare ourselves to Tucker. He has such a unique built-in audience and, and a unique history and such a good source of revenue now that he can do whatever he wants. But we have to start somewhere, and so did he. Believe it or not, there was a story out there, and I never spoke to him personally about this, that he had to mortgage his house or he had to sell his house to fund the Daily Caller in the beginning. So he only got to this point to be able to do what he wanted to do freely after going through quite a bit of pain and suffering and risk. And now that he's gone and things are evolving, as Holly and I also discussed, the more voices that are out there with platforms, the better. This monopoly, as hard as it is to break and as horrible as they will make it when we try, it's going to collapse. Sooner or later, people are going to wake up and realize that quantity is better than whatever quality these media outlets think they've been doling out. We're in a spiritual war over information and the truth. We're in a spiritual war over life and death decisions, our faith, our way of life, our families, and our souls. To quote Van Morrison, when it's nobody's business the way you want to live, like that's, that's the day. That's the day that we're waiting for. And yet, this part of the country that has power and influence has declared war on what we used to think of as just normal and peaceful. This is not the time to go with the flow and to listen to major networks funded by antidepressant pills and big pharma. It's just, we have to, there's not got to be another way. We have exhausted this trajectory. And if you live your life based on their compass, 
you'll collapse before they collapse, and they're headed for collapse very soon. So take control. You can do it. And if you can't right away because of the type of job you have or the responsibilities you have or monetary issues, there's middle ground. Like here, just the news. I'm not working out of my basement bravely. I tried. Like there was an independent part of my life, but this is kind of a middle ground. I get support to speak out, to speak the truth more than I did in any other outlet. And the other outlets tried to pay me more or entice me in different ways or get me to stay. And it was so amazing to me, the perks and the offers and the doors that would open when you were willing to stifle the truth and just stick to the script. You would think it's the opposite, but no, that's unfortunately a naive perspective I also had. I thought telling the truth would be rewarded. It's really the opposite. Life is over and done with very quickly. You'll wish you'd stood up at the end. Even if you're wrapped in every type of security and safety blanket there is out there to make you feel warm and fuzzy in an earthly sense, your soul will be empty. And as Tucker told me when he was on my last podcast, what would Jeeves do? In my last moments, I'm not going to be thinking about work. And he's right. In your last moments, if you've lived your life based on just earthly comfort and the you know, road less travel, you're going to have thoughts of how you were used as a drone, how you were used as a pawn instead of how you stood up and spoke truth. As again, I love to quote the Dark Knight movie, as Harvey Dent says in it, he tells Commissioner Gordon, if only you'd stood up against corruption instead of doing your deal with the devil. And that's what's going on today. A lot of deals with the devil going on. You know, they shake your hand, but when they say they love you, they love you like a one night stand. And the other aspect I want to talk about before we wrap up is the opioid crisis. Um, you listeners out there that have been listening and sticking with us from the beginning this, of this short run we've had so far know that I know what it's like to be in the midst of the opioid crisis. I was a patient during the years that it really exploded. And I was put on fentanyl back in the late 2000s and 2010s when I fractured my back. And the doctors were so uncaring back then that when I described how I was feeling when I tried to come off of the medication, one pain management group of doctors in particular played stupid and said, we've never heard of that happening, and kept writing prescriptions for addicts and people that were going to become addicted. I said, I'm shaking, I'm sweating, I'm having temperature fluctuations, nightmares, cramps, appetite loss, depression, stomach issues. It's an awful drug. So my advice is to, to anyone out there listening, stay away from opioids if you can. I know it's hard, but like Holly said, it starts with five pills of Vicodin for your tooth. It starts with 10 oxycodone pills for your knee surgery. And then before you know it, it becomes the rest of your life. And it shortens your lifespan in the process. For some people, the pain is so bad that moderate intake is worth the risk. They just have such an awful quality of life that whatever side effects for that time, it's worth it to them. And I, of course, benefited from that as well. But we've been programmed to think that, oh, I'm in pain. There's a pill for that that'll stop it and make me feel good. No brainer. When in reality, we all make our own choices. But now that we know the results and we have survivors of the abuse of these drugs tell the tale, let's see if we can't push this next generation to understand that they are playing with fire and it can end up costing them dearly. The good news is, though, there are still people out there in the world who recognize these issues and are working on solutions. Is there darkness in the world? Yes. Has it seemingly spread and taken the lead 
in this spiritual tug of war and back and forth? Yes. Is evil going to win in the end? No. This is a long game. Just as all these plagues that have been dragging us down in the country for the last 10 or 15 years, they were brewing since at least the 1960s. To change the world, we must have the courage to take actions that might not result in fixes immediately or fixes that we even live to see. As my father always used to tell me, our job is to fight a holding action against these forces that seek to contort, control, and destroy. So hold on just long enough in the hopes that God will inspire enough individuals to think of better ways and find us a better path. So everyone listening out there, hold fast. I know painful moments feel like they last forever. I've been there. But through faith, courage, empathy, prayer, some truth, and inner strength, we can make something out of this short time on earth that will have us smiling at the end of the race rather than be suffocated in darkness and regret. So have hope. The dawn is coming. Thank you to everyone listening out there. If you'd like to hear more and you like what you hear, please help us get our message out. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can find all episodes on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and many more. Just type in Brace, the number four, Impact. You can also retweet or share every episode that I post to my personal Twitter account. It's sometimes also retweeted by Just the News and John Solomon. And you can find me at N, as in Nick, Jeevis, G-I-V as in Victor, A-S-D-C. That's N, Jeevis, D-C. We'll see you back here next week. We have another lineup of a few famous faces and some names you might recognize who are very pumped to come on the show. And please pray for us all, not just for the podcast success or for my colleagues here at Just the News, but everyone who's out there fighting for truth. Because I may only be in my early 30s, but I've seen a lot and I've seen America in the state it's in today and it's unprecedented. So pray, persevere, stick to positivity. And we ask for respite and to be endowed with the hope that just when we think we can't take any more of this insanity, the sun will peek over the mountains to let us know that we're back on track again. So take care, have a fantastic weekend, and remember to get ready and always brace for impact. Thank you.